Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Professor Andrew McAfee. Professor McAfee is the co-director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Initiative on the Digital Economy and the principal research scientist at MIT Sloan School of Management. His work has appeared in numerous academic and popular publications, including the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. He's the author of a number of books, including The Second Machine Age, Work, Progress, and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies, co-authored with Eric Brynjolfsson. Professor McAfee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I was hoping we could start by talking about why you wrote The Second Machine Age. Um, what did you see going on around you and or what big issues or problems did you want to address with the book? Um, we wrote The Second Machine Age because we kept on getting surprised by examples of technological progress that we saw. And these examples were not just showing up in labs at MIT. That's where science fiction stuff is supposed to happen. But they were happening out there in the real economy. And things like Google's announcement in 2010 that it had been driving completely autonomous cars on American roads in traffic without killing anybody were pretty amazing to us because just five or six years earlier, uh, we thought that was not going to happen for a very, very long time. When Watson beat the Human Jeopardy champion in 2011, uh, that was pretty amazing. That was really an example of beating human beings at their own game. And so we kept on seeing more and more things like this. And we thought that the technology, that technology's capabilities and therefore that the roles that technology was going to play in our economy, in our business world, in our society, those roles were in the middle of changing very quickly. And we wanted to go off and understand that, explore it, and eventually write a book about it. And so you call it the second machine age, which obviously suggests that there was a first machine age. And and I'm wondering, just briefly, what was that first machine age and, and how do you see this second machine age as being different? The first machine age was the age when we overcame the limitations of muscle power, our own muscle power and the muscle power of animals that we were using to help plow fields and and travel roads and things like that. And the story of the Industrial Revolution, which kicked off in the late 18th century and really picked up steam throughout the 19th century, the story of the Industrial Revolution was of overcoming the limitations of muscle power and almost infinitely expanding the ability of human beings to get work done in the physical world. And it's an absolutely transformative event. The world before the Industrial Revolution looks very, very different than the world after the Industrial Revolution. So this is a big story for humanity. We think the second machine age is the story of using computers and other digital technologies to overcome the limitations of our mental power to about the same extent as the first machine age allowed us to overcome the limitations of our muscle power. And if you believe that story at all, you should think that the second machine age is also going to be a huge, great big deal for humanity because most of us probably have this feeling that uh, mental power is at least as important as muscle power for accomplishing things out there in the world. 
Now, now you talk in the book about uh, uh, incredible growth, exponential growth. And what are some of the main markers of this? Some of the main indicators that we are, in fact, in an era of of exponential growth. And exponential growth is. Um, the kind of growth that shows up like a line that bends apparently at one point in time on a graph. One kind of exponential growth is constant doubling. So you and I kind of walk around thinking about the world as a linear place where you go two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. Our minds are good at that kind of growth, and we can project that forward pretty accurately. Exponential growth is two, four, eight. 16, 32, 64, and it's extremely sneaky because it catches us by surprise because 2, 4, 8, 16 doesn't look all that impressive. Pretty quickly, you're talking about 256 and 512 and 1,024, and when you keep doubling, the numbers get they, – they feel like they get huge all of a sudden at one point in time, even though that's not what's happening. It's just the constant doubling. But at some point, we get caught by surprise by exponential progress. So that helps me understand what's going on these days because computers have been obeying Moore's law, roughly getting twice as powerful per dollar spent every 18 months since uh, about 1965. And so that constant doubling has been going on in the background. And But after that doubling has been going on long enough, you find yourself in crazy big number territory and things start looking very different. So we think that we are in the period now with enough accumulated computing power and data and bandwidth and all of these things that we're in this regime that uh, allows us to do these crazy science fiction things, thanks in large part to good old-fashioned exponential growth. Now, there's this question of lag time, right? I mean, in the past, sometimes it took, uh, in the first machine age, I guess it would take a generation or more sometimes for really big innovations to make a clear difference in the overall economy to, to regular people. And so I'm wondering, would we, do we expect to see some of a sort of a lag time like that in, in this case as well? We do, but we just don't know if those lags are getting a lot shorter or not. So what you said is exactly right. It takes time for a technological innovation to change people's lives as it, as it diffuses throughout an economy. We had steam engines. We knew about steam power for hundreds of years, and it was only when James Watt tinkered with the steam engine that it became efficient enough that it actually could do a lot of work in an economy. Even after Watt did his tinkering, it took additional decades for us to make those engines really powerful, to see that they could be used on trains, on ships, that they could really transform the global economy. That was not an overnight process. If you look at the history of electrification, the same thing is true. If you look at the history of the internal combustion engine, the same thing is true. When you look at the history of the computer, the same thing is also true. We've had computers for 60 years. The PC era is 35 years old. The internet era is 20 years old. So these things have been around for a while. And just like we'd expect, over time, we see their influence add up. We see them diffuse throughout the economy. Now, what I think is going on is that that time lag that you refer to is getting shorter. So, for example, the smartphone era 
is a decade old. The iPhone came out in 2007. There are over a billion smartphones around the world now and hundreds of millions more being sold every year. So in a decade, that technology has really been a world changer. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And when I think about the the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure that we have in place now, we've got a worldwide communications network. We've got this thing called the cloud where any company can access ridiculously large amounts of computing power on demand very, very quickly. So the opportunity that we have now is to take recent advances, think about artificial intelligence or machine learning, put that software up in the cloud and let companies all around the world tap into it as much as they want, as quickly as they want. Now, nobody knows for sure, but I think that is going to increase the speed with which these big deal innovations go out there and have an impact in the world. Right. You mentioned infrastructure and before you mentioned Moore's Law. And I know there are some people who say that, well, we're already starting to bump up against what they feel are some very real physical constraints, like the number of circuits you can put on a chip or an infrastructure that just can't handle exponentially more connections, and that's going to slow things down uh, a lot. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? From what I've been able to tell, it is true that the the original um, instance of Moore's law, the the density of transistors you can cram onto a chip, that is bumping up against limits imposed by physics, and that's going to mean something to us. However, it's also true that that's not the only way cramming more transistors onto a chip is not the only way to make computers simultaneously better, faster, and cheaper. One of the huge things going on right now is uh, tinkering with and engineering graphical processing units, which were these things that got invented to go inside an Xbox. It turns out they're really well suited for the kinds of calculations you need to do for today's artificial intelligence and machine learning software. So there's a huge amount of effort and tinkering being applied to these GPUs, these graphical processing units, and they're getting better at a very, very rapid rate. So we need – so Moore's Law uh, is shorthand for a multidimensional phenomenon where th- digital things, di- the components of computation get simultaneously better and faster and cheaper quite quickly. I don't think that basic phenomena is running out of steam yet, even if the density of transistors that we can cram into a chip is starting to reach some limits. Right. Do you think we're running low or running short on bandwidth to keep everyone connected with much more dense data streams? Uh, No. We still have Uh, ample opportunity to lay fiber, just lay one cable with a bunch of fibers in it, and that provides ridiculous amounts of bandwidth out there. The 5G wireless networks that are coming are going to make today's networks look like old dial-up connections. So I don't think we're bumping up against the limits of physics in that particular area, and there's so much thirst for more bandwidth because we all want to watch videos on our phones and have really good HD shows coming into our houses, that that global thirst is going to lead to global investment, is going to lead to global innovation. I, From what I can tell, we're not bumping up against uh, hard physics limits on bandwidth yet. Mm-hmm. 
Now, almost any innovation that I can think of, especially big ones, creates winners and losers in the economy. And I'm, I'm assuming this is the same. So who do you see is benefiting most from these changes in the second machine age and, and who ends up hurt, being hurt the most, at least in the short run? Yeah, the fundamental thing to keep in mind is that, like the old economist joke goes, technological progress is the only free lunch that you should believe in. Economists like to say there's no free lunch. Tech progress actually is one because it lets us do more with less and it makes us overall wealthier over time. So tech progress is making us a wealthier, a more abundant, a more bountiful society and world. The challenge is that there is no economic law that says that everybody is going to benefit equally or in the same ways from any advance, uh, including technological progress. So while economists love to use this image of a pie getting bigger or smaller, tech progress makes the pie bigger. You, that, that's just um, completely uncontroversial. However, it also slices up that pie differently and distributes it differently. At the level of the company, there's some evidence that more and more industries are seeing these winner-take-all dynamics where one company or a small number of companies pulls ahead and pulls away from everybody else and gets most of the market share, gets most of the profits, makes most of the money. Uh, I don't have a real problem with that. I start to have a problem and it starts to become a societal challenge if the same thing is true at the level of the individual worker. And we, we are seeing that. So it is accurate that the middle class in America and other rich countries is getting hollowed out. We are creating uh, some really good jobs for people with rare skills. Think about user experience designers or data scientists or machine learning specialists. Those folk have great job prospects ahead of them. We're also at least in America, doing a good job of creating lots of lower level, think about lower middle class service sector jobs. Think about home health aid, for example, which we need a lot of because the population is getting older, but that's not a very prestigious job. It's not a high paid job. It doesn't have great benefits associated with it. It's not a classic industrial era, solid, stable American middle class job. The problem is that our job creation engine is not turning out as many of those jobs, those solid, stable, prosperous American middle class jobs as it used to. And I think the great challenge that we need to confront over the next generation is uh, can we kick that back into gear? Can we restart that middle class job growth engine? Let's try as hard as we can. And if we can't, okay, then what do we do? Then, then what kinds of big choices do we need to make as a society? Yeah. You know, in the past, of course, the labor force has always adjusted to technological displacement, right? You you retrain current workers, you increase education levels, but but of course, every time this happens, then the bar gets raised and it gets harder and harder to uptrain and increase education. And you know, there are people like, for instance, the the economist Tyler Cohen, who says, you know, in the past we've gotten this low hanging fruit of a whole bunch of smart kids who weren't well educated, but we're getting close to exhausting this resource. I mean. Do you agree with that assessment? Look, um, things are different in our society now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. There's just no doubt about that. There is this intense debate and a ton of research going on about what has changed. Why are things different? Uh, the middle class in America is getting hollowed out. The educational gap is getting bigger. Uh, if the, People blame technology and they talk about the digital divide. That thing is there too. And it is weird that at the same time that we have more powerful tools 
for uh, starting something new, for innovating, for being an entrepreneur. In, uh, business dynamism and entrepreneurship are on the decline in the United States, and we don't really understand why that is. It is true that in, in some ways to look at the evidence, um, our educational system is not doing as good a job as it used to, and a lot of Kids are graduating from college or going through their college careers and apparently not learning very much. Okay, is that a new phenomenon? If so, what's going on? There's pretty good evidence that in the decades after World War II, we were steadily becoming a more uh, kind of um, community-based society, that these, these bonds in a community, many different flavors of social bond, were increasing over time. Then since about the early 1980s, almost all of those measures of how tightly bound a community is together, they've been hitting in the other direction. And, and our communities have been fraying and, and there's a lot of disconnection going on. Again, we don't know quite why that is. Uh, there, I, I'm, I'm, a worried, I'm worried about that phenomenon. I worry that these economic trends that we're seeing are contributing to that phenomenon and figuring out what's going on and what we can do to reverse it is, is really important homework for us, I believe. Right. Now, of course, it, you know, there are some people who would say it's exactly the, the technology that's leading to all this growth that's causing this, you know, this decline in community. Right with people on their phones all the time or at home playing video games and that whole bowling alone phenomenon and so forth. I mean that that sort of suggests that maybe there's a a darker side to this the technological improvement. Yeah, I think there is some truth to that, and it's absolutely true that if you really want to be a narcissist, you have much better tools at your disposal than ever before to endlessly talk about yourself and broadcast your life and take a selfie every five minutes and do that stuff that I find really shallow and dismaying. I think that's true. We need to keep in mind, however, that this shift in American life and these this um, decline in many different kinds of social bond, this started way before we had uh, front-facing cameras on our phones and Instagram and selfie culture and all that. The The Societal changes predate the the internet era, so I it's just inappropriate to talk about technology as being the reason that we're not talking to each any each other anymore. That's not what the only thing that's going on by any means. We should also keep in mind that um, social networks that that technologically facilitated social networks can be a flavor of glue between people. I, I think it's really important to remember that, for example. Um, if you were an LGBT kid growing up in most communities in America or around the world a generation ago, things were lonely. You felt isolated. You were probably confused. You didn't know that there were other people out there like you. And I think that could be a pretty um, a terrible way to grow up. You don't have to have that kind of isolation anymore. So I hear you and I agree that as with any powerful new technology, there are things to be cautious about. What I'm not willing to do is sit here and say that all technology does and all of these screens do is disconnect us from each other. I, I just don't think that's true. Right. Along, along the same lines, there are some people who – 
question whether or not the the rapid pace and increasing pace of change is is, is a healthy thing for us it's, and that we're that we're not wired to handle this much this quickly I, I mean I'm sure you know and I know plenty of people who just regularly just feel overwhelmed and exhausted by the pace of change and all the options that we have I mean does there come a point at which it's just all too much for our for our human brains to handle you know maybe. But that lament that you just very nicely articulated, that lament is as old as civilization itself. And you can go back and read um, Greek politicians and orators talking about how society was moving too fast and and falling apart and the center could not hold. You can go read any historical period and you will find voices saying basically exactly what you just said, that the pace of change has sped up too much. That our brains, that our institutions, that our societies can't keep up and, oh, my heavens, everything is is going to fall apart. So it does feel like things are moving really fast these days and science fiction is becoming reality. Uh, But I always go back and and try to read some of that history and keep in mind that this is an eternal – this is an eternal uh, human concern and and flavor of worrying. So – the, the the history of pessimism is a very, very long history. Meanwhile, it is true, especially since the industrial era. It is absolutely true that most things have gotten better for most people around the world. But a lot of people that I talk to really – they're either not aware of that fact or they really don't want to admit it or internalize it. It happens to be true. So I, instead of – worrying or, or hand-wringing about, moder- about modernity and about this age that we're in, there's a lot to celebrate there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I felt that your book was a was a very optimistic one in many ways, and it was sort of a, a nice change of pace. I, I had read uh, right around the same time Martin Ford's Rise of the Robots and um, Gordon's uh, book on uh, uh, economic growth and decline in the United States, and it seems like there are a number of economists who argue that that period from roughly the end of World War II to the 1970s was sort of a, a, a unique period of growth. And, and since then, we've returned to this regular growth period. Some people call it secular stagnation. And and they're saying, well, economic history tells us that this is what we should expect. And this is kind of the, the new normal. I, I take it you would disagree with this. Yes. Well, um, Bob Gordon, who's the economist that you mentioned, is a phenomenally good economist. And in particular, the work that he's done to highlight what an extraordinary century America just lived through is really, really important work because it's easy to forget how much growth we've had and how much progress we've made and how much our standards of living have improved because of innovations like uh, electricity, like indoor plumbing, like the internal combustion engine. So Bob has done this wonderful work to document how much better these things made life in America. Now, where I start to disagree with Bob is where he says, and all of these digital things that Andy, you and your colleagues are so excited about, they don't measure up to the great innovations of the past. And at some point, you know, that becomes a, oh yeah, wait and see debate. But let's Let's take an honest look at what – not what's likely to happen or what's possible. Here are some things that are going to happen in the not crazy distant future. Uh, people will be able to uh, take pictures, for example, of a lesion on their skin and get an immediate world-class diagnosis 
about what's going on. We already know from pilot studies that really powerful software and high-quality images will give you a diagnosis as good as you would get from a board-certified dermatologist in some ways. That technology, that capability is going to be available to people around the world at close to zero marginal cost very quickly. We are not going to be driving vehicles on our um, highways and streets for very much longer. We're just not. The, the self-driving technologies are too powerful. Now, I don't know if that's five years or 15, but it, it, it doesn't feel like it's too much farther out than that. Um, we are turning the corner on resource utilization around the world. Even as our economies are growing, we are now using less stuff. We're, we're dematerializing our consumption around the world. So if you're worried about the state of the planet, this is astonishingly good news. We may have hit uh, the all-time peak of our carbon emissions. That's great news. Our energy sources are going to change pretty radically because the promises that we've been hearing from the renewables community are finally turning into reality. All these things are going to happen, and the, we're going to see the impacts of them play out and accelerate over the first half of the 21st century. So I, so I think the Bob Gordon equivalent in 2050 is going to look back and, and call our attention to how much astonishing progress we've, we've seen since the dark old days of 2017. Now, there, there are certainly, I guess, some people who say that this is, you know, this is a great, wonderful, positive version of, vision of the future, and, and we can look perhaps to a future where we don't have to work or people can work by choice. But, but then there are other folks who say, well, if that's the case, if technology basically we, we, many people lose their jobs because, you know, algorithms and, and so forth are able to do those jobs. What will those people do? And you referred earlier to some tough choices we might have to make. Like, for instance, Martin Ford suggested maybe we will eventually have to go to a universal basic income or something like that. I mean, do you see a future where we're going to have to make those kind of massive changes in the political system to adjust to an economic system where most people just there's nothing that they really need to need to do. I think it's possible. And in particular, as we look farther and farther out, that scenario becomes more likely. But there's one really, really important caveat, which is that for 200 years, a procession of people has been saying that the era of massive technological unemployment is right around the corner. And for 200 years, they've been dead flat wrong. And even in the middle of the advances in the innovations that we've seen over the past five or 10 years. Keep in mind, America, the world's most technologically sophisticated economy, has been adding net jobs every month for, I believe, it's six plus years now. So we are not at peak labor. You just cannot make that argument yet. So before we start getting um, too enamored of the idea of a universal basic income and we and we there are no more jobs so let's just give people money uh the first part of that statement is not true it is not the case that there are no more jobs and i think it's really easy to underestimate the engines of innovation and entrepreneurship and growth that still need people to work to keep those engines humming now is that going to change 30 40 50 years down the road it's possible but we have plenty of time to deal with that future. What I'm a lot more 
interested in doing today is figuring out how to accelerate the job growth that we're already seeing, how to make those jobs better jobs than than what we have right now, and how to restore that just classic middle-class American dream. So I know we're running a little short on time, but I have one final question for you. For listeners who are interested in gaining a a deeper knowledge of these issues, uh, what sort of resources, whether they be books, websites, publications, I mean, aside from your work, which I definitely recommend to people, uh, would you suggest folks should check out? You know, this this um, sounds like self-promotion, and, and forgive me in advance. I use my Twitter feed, and I'm A. McAfee on Twitter. I use my Twitter feed mainly to uh, send out stuff that I have found that it, that I think is really interesting. And it's a combination of economics findings and dispatches from the front of fields like autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence and 3D printing and drones and stuff like that. So it's primarily the stuff that I find interesting and relevant and informative at this intersection of tech progress and economics and the business world and society and policy. Uh, so that I like that better than recommending any one work because this field, then this world changed so quickly that uh, a, a constant stream from technology itself, from Twitter, is, is, uh, might be helpful. Right. Okay. Well, that, that's great. I think, uh, I would recommend that, that everyone, uh, uh, follow you on Twitter. I do. And there's all kinds of good stuff all the time there. So with that, we will close. Uh, Professor McAfee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.